It's Muppeturgy with a big, noisy episode about the J.P. Morgan episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hey everyone, it's David Levy. Here with me are... Michal Richardson. Christy Bauer. And Adam Grossworth. We are here this week to talk about Season 2, Episode 18 of The Muppet Show, which was produced November 29th through December 2nd, 1977, and aired in New York City on March 6th, 1978. That was the week before Lou Rawls and the week after Peter Sellers, who we will get to next week. What What is time? Doesn't matter. It was a wild night of TV in New York City on March 6, 1978. Following The Muppet Show at 8 o'clock on CBS, it was something called The Body Human. Photographic techniques enable viewers to perceive the intricate mechanisms within the human body as Dr. Dennison Cooley performs a triple bypass operation. Jesus. What? (laughs) This isn't marked as a special, but like I've never noticed it in the listings before, so I, I don't know if this is a series or... What it's C- CBS it Network like Television? Yes, kind of. Thing, it it right? really does. Speaking of PBS, over on PBS we have Meeting of Minds. History comes to life as Steve Allen welcomes Voltaire, Martin Luther, Florence Nightingale, and Plato. I have questions. This sounds like a Muppet Show sketch. It sounds. <laughs> Like Peter Ustinov should be playing all of them in a Muppet Show sketch. Right? So there was a big ad for this in the paper, which is why I noticed it. Apparently this ran for four seasons. <laughs> there were three two-part episodes per season. So like there wasn't a ton of it made, but this was the season two premiere. Obviously actors played these <laughs> people. They did not time travel. <laughs> um, but I, it's what? For um, a second, I thought you were going to say Florence Henderson. And that <laughs> Florence Henderson played Florence Nightingale. No, she didn't. But that would Aww. be amazing. Um, would. And Pluto, the dog, played Plato. Also not true. I, it, we'll put an IMDb link in the show notes. Like you've, If you watch any TV from this period, you have seen all of these actors in things. And here they were on PBS being interviewed in character by Steve Allen. I, Steve Allen was the Tonight Show guy? Yeah. But obviously, and like Hollywood already... Squares and Match Game and like all of that shit. Anyway, uh, over on NBC uh, at nine o'clock, we have uh, Sybil, the famous Sally Field movie about multiple personality disorder. This is a rerun. This is actually from 1976. I didn't realize that was a TV movie. I've never seen it, and and I know it's quite famous, but I did not know until today that that was actually a, a TV miniseries. I just thought it was a movie movie. Yeah, considering so. I've actually heard of it, I assumed it was a movie. Yeah, no, uh, multiple Emmy-winning, hugely successful TV miniseries, Part 1, Orange Night. And before that, at 8 o'clock on NBC, actually, unironically, if you are in my age group, iconic episode of Little House on the Prairie, Part 1 of 2, where Mary loses her sight. Like, deeply, deeply (laughs) memorable. I I would have watched it in reruns uh, afternoons on Channel 11, but, like, this is actually, like, a a huge thing. (laughs) A history-making evening of television. Yeah. Um, Part two aired after the Lou Rawls episode, but uh, the New York Times has this one, uh, like, as a highlight of of the evening, along with Tonight's Muppet Show. So I I missed it when we talked about Lou Rawls, but uh, it it was impossible to miss this week. Our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. JP Morgan is a recording artist and actor, but really one of the best examples of a particular kind of celebrity we refer to as a personality. Born Mary Margaret Morgan in Colorado in 1931, 
She entered show business at age three, which seems to be a running theme this season, uh, as part of her family's vaudeville act, alongside her father, five brothers, and one sister. The act ended at the death of her father when she was 14, but she continues singing while completing high school, even recording a number of singles with Western swing artist Hank Penny. After graduating, she became the singer with Frank Duvall's band, which is when she received her stage name of J.P. With that band, she recorded her first hit, Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries, which reached number 26 on the Billboard chart. This earned her the attention of RCA Records, where she soon had a recording contract and a string of five additional hits in one year, including That's All I Want From You, which reached number three. That same year, she began appearing on national television as a regular on the daytime variety show, The Robert Q. Lewis Show, and the nighttime game show, Stop the Music. In 1954, Downbeat Magazine's annual disc jockey poll crowned her as Best New Female Singer of the Year. She soon took her show on the road to nightclubs across the country and to Las Vegas, where she headlined at the Frontier. In 1956, she landed her own variety show on NBC, which also featured four of her brothers as her backup group. They would go on to tour as J.P. Morgan and the Morgan Brothers. In the 60s, she began acting both in summer stock and in guest star roles on television. But she really came into her own as the 60s gave way to the 70s, and she became a frequent talk show guest and game show panelist, making frequent appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and on The Gong Show, where she notoriously flashed her breasts on live television twice. In the 1980s, she continued to act and sing, and she continued to record new music through 1996, when she released her last album, a duets collection with fellow Muppet Show guest star Kay Ballard called Longtime Friends. JP is still with us at 90 years old, although she is retired from performing. So JP Morgan is a singer I was familiar with to the extent that I know that my dad has a JP Morgan's greatest hit CD, but I don't think I could have identified a song she sang or recognized her voice prior to watching this episode. So I'm going to guess that none of you have pre-existing JP Morgan feelings either, but prove me wrong. I have some. Oh, go for it. <laughs> I thought I thought right. you might. I know what yeah. TV you watch. <laughs> yeah, um, but not for for her uh, singing. I so the oh what part of her uh, <laughs> <laughs> the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of high school i had mono and i spent the entire summer on the couch watching the game show network so i watched a lot of match game tattletales and the gong show and i love the gong show it's really hard to find compared to the others it's one of those where it's such an acquired taste that people don't necessarily <laughs> rush to put it in the same category as match game and the others but yeah i was i was obsessed with it especially at like age 14 it, it like it's very teenage in its sensibilities <laughs> like, I, for, for listeners who've never seen the gong show can you describe an episode yeah so basically the gong show is a really bizarre talent show where deliberately bad acts go on and the goal is to not get gonged. Like basically the gong is the equivalent of like a vaudeville hook. And it's like, if you can get to the end of your act without uh, being gonged, then you're up to win the prize. I don't remember how big the prize was. If anything, did a really big gong. That would be amazing. Yeah. (laughs) That would be amazing. And what did the celebrities do on the show? Uh, They were uh, judges. So it it was up to them to gong people. Ah. So yeah. So so like J.P. Morgan would always be on there wearing like you know big round dark sunglasses, and 
she just oh my gosh I, I I loved her because she just and we'll we'll get into why when we talk about the the episode proper. But there there is a, a quality to her that is so deeply late seventies, and I love it so much. It's funny. I think my encounters with the Gong Show were when I was a little bit younger and didn't appreciate irony, and so I was just like, "Why does anyone want to watch a show of bad things?" and just flip the channel. There was a revival a few years ago that lasted at least a couple of seasons, but I don't think that version is still so on. No, it's not. And it was terrible. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the problem with reviving 70s game shows is that you can get away with more, and it's not as funny. Like, the current match game, terrible. Terrible. Well, I mean, also Alec Baldwin. Well, sure. Anything. Yeah, but, but even the bits that have nothing to do with Alec Baldwin, are, it, it's... Because you can say more, it it's just not the there's just no entendre anymore. So it's pointless. And there's also no personalities. Like there's no Charles Nelson Riley of today. And if someone says Randy Rainbow, I swear to God, I will leap <gasps> oh, through your headphones and how bring dare you? <laughs> oh man, my blood pressure just spiked no, but, so hard. But Deborah Messing <laughs> is the Charles Nelson Riley. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, but like, I mean, I, when I was little, I remember my parents explaining to me that a personality is someone who's famous for being famous. But today, that's like a Kardashian or Lindsay right. Lohan, and they're not people you want on the match game. No. Yeah, it's yeah, and actually, like when people try to do people like that on Snatch Game on Drag Race, like it, it, it sometimes works, but almost never. Like the people who succeed do older like do impressions of older people, which is interesting. We definitely watched the gong show when I was a kid, like in first run. And I don't, I didn't understand any of it. And I don't have any memory of JP Morgan, but like, yeah, it was a thing. It was just like there. It's one of those, like you got five channels things. (laughs) My only association with the gong show is the Simpsons reference to it. But the clip that you sent us of the gong show feels just so appropriately zany and Muppety that I understand why she's a good fit for whatever's going on in this episode. And why she was moved to just flash her breasts. Because no, I don't understand that. It's, just, <laughs> it's like being in a musical, right? Like sometimes uh, when you run out of words to say, you have to sing them. And sometimes when you're on the panel for <laughs> when a you run out of songs. talent show and you run out of things to express your feelings, you just got to shake your boobies. Did people not wear bras then? Uh, some people didn't. I mean, and she didn't. <laughs> she she was prepared to do what she had to do on the gong show at any moment's notice. I guess. And sometimes you have to get things started. Why don't you get me so, Christy, yeah, how do you feel about this episode of the Muppet Show? Gong show aside. So, if somebody asked me, "Hey, Christy, what's a perfect example of a season two episode of the Muppet Show?" I would probably point them to this. The thing I love about season two as opposed to season one is it feels less like a stagey variety show and how it incorporates the guest. It sort of assimilates rather than defers, <clears throat> except for Elton John. But the thing I would say is that the, in, in this season two model, the guest's energy drives the bus. And in this case, J.P. Morgan has like horny, chaotic Studio 54 cocaine energy, <laughs> which is a quality that, frankly, I consider aspirational. And while it doesn't 100% translate to Muppetdom, when it does, who boy it does. I like this a lot. There's only one truly off note for me, and it's more of an oof 2022 thing than anything. 
which is bombs as a runner in a kid's show. Uh, yikes. But taking off the nail goggles, I think this is pretty great. Yeah, uh, I had no memory of this episode. I did not know who J.P. Morgan was. Like, even from from DVDs, I, like, you know, as if I'd never watched it. But then it turns out that one of my favorite Muppet things of all time comes from this episode, and I I remembered it. I just didn't remember where it came from. Uh, I'll save what it is when we get there. I, I love this episode. I think it's basically flawless. I mean, there, I, I can quibble. I will. But I, I love it. I love her. I want more of her. <laughs> I, I, yeah, deeply, deeply into it. Michal? Yeah, as much as there were some yikes moments for me in this episode, um, I also love the energy of it overall. I mean, it, it moves and moves and it <laughs> explosions keep exploding. And uh, even though there continue to be some less than ideal gender dynamics on various uh, aspects of The Muppet Show, there's also a whole lot of fun. And I really love the pacing. And I love when... There's, I mean, we'll talk about the the bit of Muppety perfection that's just two minutes in the middle of this episode, but I love when there's something that's perfect and Muppety just comes on with no introduction. When, I don't know if it's something that's supposed to be happening on stage or backstage, it's just the Muppets hanging out, and we don't have things broken up by introductions, it's just things come at you and come at you. And that happens at least once in this episode, but it's the feel of the episode overall. David? Yeah, loved it. Uh, one of my favorites of this season. Maybe we'll see if it if it holds that rank uh, as we get into future seasons. But it was great. I love the conceit of the guest star who isn't really thrilled to be there. And I also love that while there isn't exactly, I wouldn't call it a backstage plot, the backstage action feels really lived in in such a way that halfway through when J.P. Gross shows up, it feels like almost like uh, not a subplot or like a shift in the plot, but it just feels like, uh, you know, a real day in the life of what goes on with the Muppets. And sometimes someone does show up halfway through the show that they hadn't expected. And that sends things off in a different direction. And it doesn't feel like a weird trick of the writers. It just feels like actually how these people's lives go. I don't know. I just really liked it. J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan. 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Morgan. Oh, Scooter, I have a little present for you. Oh, gee, thanks. Hey, this is a... This is not going to be just another cute puppet show. Yeah, J.P. Morgan is not taking this guest star role lying down. She is fighting back against it by throwing bombs at her hosts, and I'm into it. I feel like you can see the whole origin of this episode in that one line. Like, I'm sure either when they were pitching the show to her or when she had the first meeting with the writers about what they wanted to do with her episode, someone said, well, this is not another cute puppet show. And, and like, the light bulb went off. and They're like, let's lean into that. Yeah, she's not about the cute. And we'll get into it and she'll get into it. Gonzo's trumpet bit blows up. There are a lot of explosions this episode. Uh Gonzo rears back to try to give a blast on his horn, and then uh, he blows up and disappears, and Crazy Harry appears in his place. Statler and Waldorf are also keeping things moving. Let's get this turkey on the road! Uh, There is no development in the yay evolution in the opening, but uh, Kermit does give JP a yay when he introduces the opening number. Our very special guest star, ladies and gentlemen, JP Morgan! You know what's funny? 
I just remembered that when I was a kid watching the gong show, I didn't know that she was a singer. I assumed that she was an heiress. <laughs> and and so that added to her mystique. It was like she was like this, you know, rebellious heir to the, you know, actual JP Morgan fortune who's decided to judge a terrible talent show on TV. I was like, you're my favorite person. <laughs> That's a perfect explanation of whatever this confluence of her name and JP Morgan and JP Gross. I I don't understand it, but I like the explanation that you decided to make up. Yeah, I'm up at your backstage. So as we've said, the plot this week is more like a running gag or a series of running gags or a running gag that gives way to a different running gag towards the end of the episode. But we have an embarrassment of JPs here this week. We've got JP Morgan, the the singer and celebrity and personality, maybe an heiress, we're not sure. She and the Muppets all presumably agreed that she would like to be here and they would like to have her here. They are all sending each other rather mixed messages about that, though. So this is a bit from JP Morgan's opening number. Tweedly, tweedly dee, what am I doing here? I mean, this is really corny. I flew 8,000 miles to be here. The plane was late, I haven't slept, and I'm dressing with a bunch of pigs. Then they put me in this bird brain costume. Want me to be cute? The feathers smell like a skunk. Then I gotta say. So, yeah, so she's, she's on stage <laughs> delivering that. <laughs> and she's. In this bird costume, the entire time that she's complaining, she's still flapping her wings and, like, thrusting her hips to simulate flying. I mean, is is she puppeteering? Is there a puppeteer that's also operating the costume? I think it's just her. I, I think... Hip thrusting? I think she's actually sitting down, and her her lower legs are in... are also covered in, in the, the green screen material. It's what I think is happening. Um, so like I think she's just like legs to make, yeah, I think she, that's what I think is happening. That um, makes more sense, but I'm not entire. I, I couldn't quite figure it out. She may um, just be very good at hip isolation. She might be, um, either that or she's like kneeling on something. Um, mm. right. Cause she's not, it's not her full leg, right? She's, she's truncated. What we're seeing is a green screened JP in a bird outfit, but really just, the equivalent of her tor- her torso right. is what we're seeing. Right, and, and at the end of the number, she tail feathers. She lands. She sort of crash lands. So, like, I guess the implication is that she is actually flying. <laughs> like, that's like sort of the the gag. Um, so, I guess she has to keep it up. I don't know. It's it's all very funny, and I love it. And we'll talk more about it when we talk about the song. Yeah, I don't know. I just it's such a great tone. Like the combination of the dressing room, and then this is the first. Um, this is not an episode where Kermit is like, and our great guest. Let's now do something else. So like, we meet her in the dressing room, and then we meet her here to start off the episode. And just like, what a tone <laughs> to begin yeah. with. I love it. Yeah, and then in case you thought she was just doing this for the audience, uh, when J.P. Morgan comes off the stage, she tells us again she is indifferent about being here. You, I just can't tell you what a thrill it is to have you on the show. Ah, thank you, Kermit. Nice of you to say so. I'd like to say I'm really indifferent about being here. <laughs> indifferent? Yeah, well, you know what I mean. Yeah, but but what, what's wrong? That, that last number was terrific. It was really cute. Yeah, it was cute, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, it was. It was just so cute. <laughs> I hate cute. <laughs> uh, we're in trouble. Big Mary Tyler Moore series from your vibes from that line mm. delivery. She says she hates cute, and I believe it. Kermit tries to make it up to her by sending a cake to her dressing room, but it turns out to be an exploding cake, 
which is funny, except that then we see JP Morgan coming out of her dressing room, coughing and collapsing, which is less funny to me, but I, I get what they're going for. In general, Muppet explosions are funny. There's also a season one style talk spot in which Kermit kind of gaslights the guest star into believing that military assaults on the guest stars are okay. (laughs) And she comes out of the talk spot seeming to enjoy explosions by the end of it. It it did give me, uh, he hit me and it felt like a kiss. (laughs) I mean, Kermit keeps doing that thing where like, like he explodes and disappears and then reappears and he's fine. So like it, yeah. there there are two very different kind of Muppet explosions in this episode. Right? Like there's the there's the there's the kind that's totally okay. There's like disappearing a puff of smoke explosion, and then there's the kind that actually seems to injure you. Yeah. And one is uh, more fun than the other. JP seems to incur both kinds of explosions yeah, in yeah. this episode. In the in the talk spot, it's the it's the harmless one. Uh, yeah. And she gets a kick out of doing the exploding and disappearing trick by the end of the talk spot. I gotta say that even though intellectually I understand that the way they achieve the trick of there's an explosion and then the Muppet is gone is that they like stop the videotape, remove the Muppet, resume the videotape. But I watched this episode twice and every time Kermit disappears and then immediately walks on from the other side of the screen, I'm like, how'd they do that? It's (laughs) impressive. Well, you know, and in this one, you know, I watched a couple times. I'm not even sure that's what's happening in this one because. If it is, if it, if that's what they're doing, J.P. Morgan is the stillest person on the planet. <laughs> I thought it might have just been that there are two Kermits. I mean, yeah, I wondered, like, and that and that they, you know, they do the the puff of smoke, and 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 Kermit drops down below frame, and then a second puppet comes on the other side, which is also, you know, a very simple trick that you can do when you have puppets. We've seen it the other way, and whenever when it when it is a, an edit, you can usually see a little jump, and there was no jump even with a human sitting uh, on the stage. So I don't, I, I honestly don't know. I just, I, I definitely looked for it. Yeah, I tried to figure it out, and I was like, she's moving the whole time. How are they doing it? As long as we're talking about the talk spot, the real star of the talk spot is JP's hat. Yes, her whole outfit, but uh, we do have a clip of her hat. You know, uh, explosions are one of your trademarks. Mm-hmm. Well, spectacular hats are one of mine. Oh, that one is fantastic. I particularly wanted to wear this one on the Muppet Show, too. Oh, where is that? <laughs> I guess you could say I blew my top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you could say that, but we did that joke last year. Figures. It's a great hat. It's a great hat, but the residual flame after the explosion in the hat makes me so <laughs> nervous. Yes. Oh my god. Like it's still on fire as the scene is ending. <laughs> I got nervous for her hearing, but I worry about these things. That too. I think the I think that's a sound cue added afterwards. I don't think it's that loud, but who- I mean it makes sense that they punched up the sound, but it must have still made a sound when it yeah. went off. Meanwhile, I don't know where Kermit gets off saying, Oh, we did that joke last year, which they did. It was not the <laughs> dance bit. When in this episode they repeat a joke in two different sketches. And they make jokes about how they've made so many bomb jokes already just a couple minutes into the episode. True. They love a running gag. So coincidentally, this episode, J.P. Gross, Scooter's uncle who owns the theater, not to be confused with J.P. Morgan, the guest star, not to be confused with J.P. Morgan Chase, of which 
JP Morgan is, we're presuming the heiress in some form. Uh, right. JP Gross, which is uncle who owns the theater, is here. Um, and he's here to make some kind of inspection. There is some kind of threat that doesn't go anywhere. He's just kind of here. And Kermit manages to get both on his bad side and on the bad side of the guest star simultaneously without even trying. Oh, not JP. I don't think I can take it. Of all the people I can't stand to have around here when we're doing a show, JP is the worst. I mean, JP is without a doubt the most difficult, impossible, unfriendly. Oh, hi, JP. Oh, uh, uh, JP. Uh, when, when I said JP just now, I didn't mean JP, JP. I meant JP, JP. You know what I mean? No. Uh, right. Wrong. Yeah. Kermit, by his own admission, puts both flippers in his mouth. He also manages to convince J.P. Gross that he's the one who's going to be singing the closing number. Fortunately, we get an excellent closing number instead from the actual guest star, and we'll talk about that later. But this was a fun little mix-up. So yeah, J.P. Morgan, a singer, not an heiress. And uh, that's good news for The Muppet Show, because you can't really be an, an heiress as an act, presumably. I don't know, Paris Hilton seems to have made a whole career out of it. It's true, it's true, it's true. Uh, yeah, so we open with the aforementioned uh, bird number. Mercy, mercy, pudding pie. Say he's got some that money can't buy. Tweedly, 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 dumb. Dumb is right. Tweedly, 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 deep. All right, here we go. It is cute. It's very cute. So cute. I was astounded to discover that this is like a real song and not just like a kiddie song, perhaps written for the Muppets. Oh, yeah. it's such a, like, 50s stupid novelty whatever. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Yay! Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Tweedledee or Tweedledee, depending on the source you consult, was a 1954 hit for Laverne Baker. It was written by Winfield Scott, who wrote or co-wrote a lot of Elvis's hits, including Return to Sender. And uh, as uh, unfortunately happened a fair bit in the 50s, it was not as big of a hit for Laverne Baker as it was for a white singer named Georgia Gibbs, who uh, quickly recorded it around the same time as Laverne Baker and sold more records. And there actually was a, a copyright battle that came out of that. And also uh, Elvis covered it uh, early on, on the radio. Laverne Baker referenced in Hedwig the Angry Inch. So now I'm imagining Hedwig doing it and I'm not mad about it. I feel like at least some of our listeners uh, have come to expect deep research from us, and and we've somewhat failed you. Um, this is the um, this is how Kermit intros the number. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And here we are again with another one of those things entitled the Muppet Show. And starting off, we are going to do the very first piece of material the Muppets ever did. No kidding, it was a little song entitled Tweedledee Dee, and we first did it about twenty three years ago. But tonight. We have a new and very cute version of it done by our very special guest. We can confirm that it's cute. <laughs> we could not corroborate this fact. And a lot of people have tried to. And the general belief is that this was likely a number done on Salmon Friends, which was Jim Henson's first local TV show in Washington, D.C., that it was 
where a lot of the acts were his Muppets lip syncing to pre-existing recordings. And we'll talk more about that later in this episode. But because it was just a local TV show that predates VCRs, much of it's been lost. There's there's uh, quite a few clips of it available online, but not this one. However, uh, Craig Shemin, who is the archivist for the Jim Henson Company, is currently working on a book about the history of Salmon Friends. And so he has been doing a lot of research, and I expect when that book comes out, it may have the answer to this question. Oh, J.P. Morgan is terrific! Yep, but that number was for the birds. <laughs> you had to do that joke, huh? Uh, one of us had to, and I lost the toss. <laughs> I love when the Muppets do it. You lost the toss, so you have to do this joke. <laughs> so our, our next number is a repeat, so we won't go into it too much, but... Flight of the Bumblebee. Uh, it's uh, a Rimsky-Korsakoff piece from 1900. We've talked about it. Uh, it appeared in the Juliet Prowse episode. And uh, it is a recurring a bit for the Muppets. In this particular case, it's uh, Ralph on the piano and Gonzo on trumpet while Animal chases a bumblebee. With a club. Like a caveman. Yeah. And the bumblebee is just like a yellow dot that's been animated onto the screen presumably after the fact it's very funny it's very um stage tinkerbell yeah yeah it's very chaotic so my guess adam is that uh this week's uk spot is your favorite bit yes yes it is hey i didn't know you could play the piano i didn't know it either (laughs) join in Here I go. Oh, he's good. Yeah. Ah. This is my part. Take it. Very good. I love this so much. It's so much. So great. Uh, so it's uh, Ralph Fozzie playing a, a, a four-handed duet of a song called English Country Garden or Country Gardens, uh, depending on who you ask, uh, w- which is an old English folk song that can be traced back as far as 1728. Extreme shout out to the public domain. Uh, the earliest found version of it is a, a very similar melody in the Quaker's Opera, which is a parody of Beggar's Opera, which if that sounds vaguely familiar to you, it's the source material for the Three Penny Opera. And it's a traditional Morris dancing <laughs> tune. And I know that Michal has feelings about Morris dancing. I mean, if you say Morris dancing in certain circles, just that is a laugh line. I asked a friend who is part of the contradance community with me for her best non-offensive Morris dancer joke. And there wasn't a non-offensive one, but she said Morris dancers. That's, that's the joke. <laughs> Can you explain to me what a Morris dancer is? Also, what is contra dancing? We've gone down a whole rabbit hole here. Uh, <laughs> uh, contra dance is New England folk dancing. Okay, it is an American folk dance related to square dancing, but not the same. Got it. Both of those are descended from English and French 
country dances, which do include, or they're all in the same universe as Morris dancing. However, if I tried to explain to you what Morris dancing is, I would fail. <laughs> I tried Morris dancing one time and I still didn't know what was going on. You're, you wear white and you strap on bells and you leap around and you hurt your ankles as far as I can tell. I looked up a video because when I read that this was a Morris dance tune, I had to look up a Morris dance performance of this and my spouse from the other room could hear the bells of the Morris dancers and started yelling, is somebody Morris dancing? And then came in here and saw what I was watching and was like, those motherfuckers. <laughs> Um, because as country dancers, we are obligated to laugh at Morris dancers because what the fuck are they doing? Yeah. I, don't I mean, know. to my untrained eye, I'm going to laugh at all of you, but, uh, we will put that video in the show notes and, and listeners, you can, you can go to muckertreasure.com and judge for yourselves. I mean, the bells do take it to a whole nother level. I will grant. <laughs> and the sticks, there were sticks involved. Yeah. It's a lot. They have a lot of props. Yeah. Anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it feels really like pointless at this point to say, Jim Henson and Frank Oz are really good at this, but oh my God, they're so they're good at really this. They're really good at it. So good. so good. So at one point, like while they're playing, it gets faster and faster and um, Fozzie loses, Fozzie's hat falls off and onto the keyboard, which they're not really playing, but it really looks like they're really playing. And and I, I, I clipped that too, because it just makes me so happy. <laughs> right, modulate. What's that? Also, there's the modulate joke again. <laughs> Picks it up and throws it. Can you play Atlas? I don't know who wrote it. Keep playing, yes, sir. (laughs) Oh, that's how it works, huh? Let's play it, yes, sir. I love how they're just playing more and more furiously and both discovering as they go that Fozzie can play the piano. Right. And like and like the, the, the tossing of the hat out of the way. And and I think like it's it's important to note that like there's actually four puppeteers. Because of the way the the arms on Fozzie and Rolf work, and I'm pretty sure for this two live pianists also, like it might be pre-recorded, but I know sometimes um, when Rolf played, there was a a live pianist, and this this all feels very improvised. And so I I'm assuming and hoping that that there was also there were also two people actually playing for them. So this is this is six people probably all working in like perfect tandem together. Um, if the bit with the hat was not an actual accident and they didn't improvise all of that, no one ever tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> so we get another duet of a very different sort. Uh, if you, like me, hate the sound of whistling in in headphones, uh, trigger warning, I guess, but that's also a weird thing that I have, so <laughs> might just be me. <laughs> So this is another one of those things where I'm like, this is not a Muppet original situation. No, this is a song called Big Noise from Winnetka. Winnetka is a suburb of Chicago, uh, it's worth mentioning. And it was written pretty much exactly like this. It was uh, originally improvised by a bass player named Bob Haggart and a drummer named 
Ray Boddock, who were members of a group called the Bob Crosby Orchestra. And they improvised it exactly like this with uh, bass and whistling. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how they recorded it. It's more impressive when a puppet manages to whistle. Yeah. And so we should mention it's Floyd and Nigel. And I think the choice of Nigel is actually a really good one for this because his mouth articulates in such a way that you actually believe that he's whistling. It also very much calls back to the Saxon violence number that he did with Zoot in season one, where it's just the two of them. Like, this could be like a great runner for Nigel, except that I don't know how many more times he's going to get to do this sort of duet. I do think we will get to see him whistle again. Uh, This is our second Bob Fosse (laughs) adjacent number. The only reason I know this at all is is uh, it's it's a number in Bob Fosse's Dancing, which I've never seen. It's has not been revived, but um, but I distinctly remember reading uh, a Fosse biography before YouTube, and like they kept referring to this song, which is as you say a really weird ass title, and. And I just was like, what, what are you, please stop saying that word. Like, what is going on? <laughs> um, but then late, you know, I, I have since seen the number and it's, there's a, um, there's a video of Anne Reinking doing it on a, on some talk show. And we will put that in the show notes because, you know, any excuse to watch Anne Reinking dance. I don't really care for it musically, <laughs> but you can press mute and watch Anne Reinking dance. Whereas I know this song because it was a Bette Midler staple in her late seventies act. She did a disco version of it, which we will also include in the show notes. With with lyrics, or did she just whistle it? With lyrics. There are lyrics to the song. And I know it because it was included on some Muppet album or another that I had. I didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> so our our closing number is uh, a JP and uh, Dr. Teeth duet. Same old tingle that I feel inside. And now that love baby starts to try. Down and down I go. Down and round I go. Like a leaf caught in the tide. I should stay away. What can I do? I hear your name and I'm a flame. A flame. A burning desire. And all your kiss. Also perfect. It's so horny. (laughs) My gosh. Okay, well, since since we went there already, near the end of the number, and I I have to believe it was an accident, Dr. Teeth fully grabs J.P. Morgan's boob and holds his hand there for a long time, and she takes it and moves it. And, like, (laughs) obviously Dr. Teeth cannot actually feel anything, so I I have to assume that it was an accident on the part of Jim Henson, and and then she was like, okay, this is weird, and, like, moved it, and obviously there'll be a gif of this in the show notes. It's real horny. (laughs) I totally missed it. I I don't know that I would have... If you look at the Muppet wiki page for that old Black Magic... One of the pictures on that page is Dr. Teeth with his hand on her boob. <laughs> it's there for a long time, you guys. <laughs> I don't know that I would have noticed it if I hadn't been making gifts, but I, I was and I did. My goodness. Anyway. So this is That Old Black Magic. It's a song by Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer. We've talked about Johnny Mercer a lot. And Harold Arlen, we've mentioned a few times, uh, he wrote the music for Somewhere Over the Rainbow and The Man That Got Away. And this song is from 1942 uh, from a movie called Star Spangled Rhythm. 
It lost the best song Oscar to You'll Never Know from the movie Hello, Frisco, Hello. Uh, <laughs> Which is a great movie. Don't make fun of it. <laughs> Both things can funny. be true. It's a funny title. Yes. Sure. And it's Alice Faye. It should be on Disney+. Plus. It's a Fox classic, but Disney <laughs> does not know what to do with the treasure trove that they bought. So there were nine songs nominated that year, and three of the nominees were Harold Arlen songs. In addition to this one, uh, there was My Shining Hour, which was also with Johnny Mercer uh, from The Sky's the Limit, and Happiness is a Thing Called Joe uh, with Yip Harburg from Cabin in the Sky. He was the Pasek and Paul of his day. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was calculating, what what can I say that will annoy you the most? Who can I choose? (laughs) I chose well. Yep. This version of the song is modeled on the Louis Prima and Keeley Smith version, which if you haven't listened to any Louis Prima and Keeley Smith duets, I highly recommend looking them up. They were married and their interplay singing is very delightful. And if you don't know the name, you would recognize Louis Prima's voice immediately because he was also King Louis in the Jungle Book. Correct. Anyway, I thought it was cool when when I was looking this up that I found that the Louis Prima Keely Smith recording won the first ever Grammy Award for Best Performance by a Vocal Group or Chorus the first years that the Grammys existed. Hmm. That's very cool. Yeah. This song, apparently the first hit version was by Judy Garland, which I was surprised because I feel like I know a lot of the Judy Garland catalog and I know this song really well and it's not a song I associate with her. Like I tend to think of Ella Fitzgerald or Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, it's been recorded by a million people, uh, but that was surprising to me. And, and it was it read somewhere that Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer wrote it with Judy Garland in mind. I think Johnny Mercer might have been sleeping with Judy Garland at the time. So, like, read it really with her in mind. Unless I misunderstood the <laughs> reference material I was reading. Well, if you didn't drink the first time you heard Johnny Mercer, definitely drink twice now. Right. <laughs> and this song also has a long history with the Muppets. This appeared on Salmon Friends, where Kermit lip-synced to the... Prima and Smith recording, uh, along with Sam. Sam played the Louis Prima's voice, and Kermit in drag did the Keeley Smith part, uh, which they also did again on, I believe, the Today Show. And that clip exists on YouTube, so we will share it in the show notes. It's adorable. I definitely recommend it. A sort of pre-Miss Piggy, Miss Piggy, and Hamilton Pig did it together on The Tonight Show in the early 70s, although I could not find a clip of that. Sweetums and Cher did it on a 1975 episode of The Cher Show. What? Which I also uh, did not find a clip of, but I did not know that existed until we started recording this episode, so I have to go back and look for it. And Miss Piggy sang it with Andy Kaufman in character as Tony Clifton on the 1982 special The Fantastic Miss Piggy Show. You have me and you lost me. I think that recordings of that episode of the Share Show have been on and off the internet, or like half of it has surfaced, and we'll see if we can find it. I just, I love this. I, I I mean I have nothing coherent to say about it except that I love it. Um, they have amazing chemistry. <laughs> yeah, and it's so much fun. Animal yelling, baby! Delightful. It is electrifying, and I wasn't even trying to be funny. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't notice the boob grab partly because, like, they they full-on kiss multiple yeah. times during the song. Yeah. There's a lot going on. For as much as the backstage plot is not much of a plot, there is, like, sort of a story arc of, of them winning her over that culminates in this, right? Like, she's having a great time. 
and and I I do really like that. But that's how this episode ends ish. Yeah. Not, not and quite I, at the end, but. For whatever it's worth, all of those kisses are initiated by her. She is very into it. Yeah. This is this is not a finale with um with dead uh you know ghost Bunraku ballad happening. Like this is it this is, is a good way to alive. end the episode. This is how all episodes should end. Yeah. Celebrating life with makeouts. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. All right, let's get this turkey on the road. The Swedish chef has a coconut, uh, which he is attempting to pry open. <laughs> that That's the whole sketch. He's trying to open this coconut. He First, he has a knife, which I guess is actually a cake spreader, which is very ineffective. Uh, then he tries a saw. He tries to kluber it with a mallet. Uh, he does eventually crack the coconut open, and inside he finds der bomb. Man, the the chef goofing with the cake spreader and like the whisk on it at the beginning makes me laugh every single time. It's pretty great. Also, when when the chef comes off stage, having had a bomb explode in his face, and he he is looking all scarred, and he kind of waves a hand half heartedly. That hand is a puppet hand. It was very disconcerting. Huh. I didn't notice. No, me neither. I guess they have puppet hands for the chef, just in case. Still rather confusing. Oh, wait just a minute. That's the second time tonight they've used a bomb joke. <laughs> Three's a <the> charm. <laughs> I fully embrace this philosophy of the Muppets. As long as I don't have to watch people die. And yet... The inconsistency here bothers me because this is an actual bomb exploding and and nothing happens to I mean, Stalin. Kermit and JP both explode themselves and disappear. But, di- and- but that's different, right? That's the that's the magic trick explosion. This is an actual bomb going off. And so if it, if the, if it were consistent, then he should, you know, come away blackened or whatever. And he does not. He is totally fine. I know, but we're talking about internal logic in the the Magical reality of the Muppet Show. Well, who's to say that all of these bombs are the same? Like, each one could have a different recipe. In the way that, like, Hawkeye has all his different trick arrows, how do we know that Crazy Harry doesn't make different bombs that do different things? And some of the bombs blacken and some of them don't. Some of them injure and some of them don't. Somebody can make a grid and show us which one is which. Stand by for mid-course correction. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, so Fozzie has what is not exactly a full-on sketch, but uh, he has an introduction, and it does warrant a full-on heckling, apparently. Hey, hey, uh, hey, uh, Kermit wants me to do the next introduction. Oh, yeah? Well, he's the only one who does. <laughs> hey, hey, come on, guys, no heckling. I mean, I'm not even out here to tell jokes. Have you ever been? <laughs> hey, you know that that bear is funny. You're right. In fact, I never enjoyed you more than I did last week. Mm. Oh, th- well, I-, I didn't do an act last week. I rest my case. <laughs> Aw. Alas. So meanwhile, at the dance, every joke starts with somebody telling their dance partner the trouble with you is, or the, the trouble with women is, uh, or some such thing. It does make for a better theme and setup than that time they did only tennis jokes. Also, Droop. You know, the trouble with women is they always take things personally. I don't. 
The trouble with men is that they're all too wishy-washy. Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Droop. Droop sighting. Very wishy-washy droop, but droop nonetheless. I'm always happy with an at-the-dance, even a mediocre at-the-dance. Sure. The Later on in the, the sketch, uh, there's a, a lady whatnot who turns into a green frackle. And I just, I noticed that the her her hand uh, on her partner's shoulder is green the whole time. So I just like a little how the sausage got made. They they apparently swapped out green frackles head as opposed to swapping out the pink or whatever whatnot's head or swapping out the whole puppet. I like knowing how they did that. It's fun when we can figure out what's going on. And it's also fun when we can't figure out how they did that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice to have a little of both in this episode. So here's Pigs in Space. I will say, starring the the fatuous Captain Link Hogthrob, the recalcitrant first mate Miss Piggy, and the describable Doctor Strange Pork. This week, the swine trek is plummeting towards Earth at an alarming rate and needs to jettison something. We are losing altitude, <gasps> and we must lighten the weight of the rocket by throwing something overboard. Oh, and and you want me to help you decide what? No. Oh? We've already decided what. What? Hmm. Are you out of your mind? Uh, uh, no hard feelings, I hope, Miss Piggy. No hard feelings? Why you... They don't exactly set this up such that it's one long fat joke, but that still seems to be the implication. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't read it that way, though I see how you c- could or did. I mean, I'm still annoyed on Miss Piggy's behalf. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Okay, so I wasn't here for Cleo Lane, and I am fully Team McCall. That, like, I don't remember what I said. The reality, well, I just listened to it. So, so, the reality of Pixel's face is weird in a way that, like, Veterinary Hospital, for example, is not. Like, when we're in Pigs in Space, everyone, especially link and also dr strange pork really behave 100 percent of the time as if it is 100 percent real and piggy sort of acts a little bit more like she's in a sketch and like uh, yes i understand that it's a tv show and yes i understand that you know it is a sketch that they're performing and that's sort of the point but like the stakes always feel really high to me on pigs in space as if they could actually die especially from link and it does start to get really weird when he is, you know, sexually harassing his coworkers or trying to murder them. You know, those regular like, just like, things. Well, it is a, you know, it is a spaceship. But like the, I don't know, the tone, the tone of it has struck me as like particularly off, like particularly from Link. Like the tone, I don't think they've gotten the tone of Link right yet to where it's like, is this funny or is this guy actually the absolute worst <laughs> also, in the Cleo Lane episode, we saw, I think, for the first time, that there are other crew members on the swine track. Not that I'm advocating that any of the crew should be jettisoned in this situation, but why, Miss Piggy? There are other pigs on board. Well, I think that's the misogyny of it. I, I don't think it's necessarily a fat joke. I think it's just, well, if we have to ditch someone, here's our chance to ditch that annoying woman. Right. Right. Fair. Who's just been doing our laundry and studied 11 years to push the one button they won't let her push. 
Yeah, but now no one's going to do their laundry. She's the only one who knows how. But she says earlier in this very sketch that she's done doing their laundry and will not be doing it in the future. Solid she's point. waiting for a more important assignment. Anyway, I don't know. I don't. I, I have. I always loved Pigs in Space as a child, and I have not really enjoyed revisiting it. And I hope I start enjoying it again soon. I just would like to say, Piggy's hair looks fantastic. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I'm glad we've got that going for us. If she has to go, <laughs> what a way to go. In case Pigs in Space hadn't already reminded you that last week's Muppet News Flash involved a plane needing to jettison some cargo, here is this week's Muppet News Flash. A charter flight carrying the London Symphony Orchestra has been forced to jettison some of the musical instruments. (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting, like, a bunch of trumpets to drop on top of him, but it's an entire piano. That's the only instrument, and I love it. Very satisfying. Anyway, if you uh, weren't worried about crime before, Sam the American Eagle has some opinions for you. My friends, I I caution you to keep out an eagle eye for the blackguards and rabscallions who are perpetrating this reign of latrocity. Latrocity, that, that means stealing. What? If it weren't for my own eternal vigilance and 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 absolute awareness of crime, I am certain that the rising legions of sneak thieves and ne'er-do-wells and, and snakes in the grasses would strip this theater bare. Yes, so Sam is distressed by banditry and skullduggery, and all the while there are snakes in the grass and ne'er-do-wells, uh, who are stealing the scenery from around him, and eventually they also abscond with Sam. So I I looked up latrocity. I just did that while we were listening to the clip, and there are zero results. So for me, it actually, like, auto... Like, it re- Google sent me to larceny. Yeah. Oh, I just thought he was saying the word atrocity. No, he's saying... I thought that also my first watch, but no. It's I think it's latrocity. And then he explains it. <laughs> and then he explains it, because it's not a word. But I was like, is it? Is it a word? Is it like an old-timey version? It is not, which makes it even funnier to me. But also, I love that Google is smart enough <laughs> to be like, you mean larceny, dummy. Um, <laughs> yeah, too bad Sam didn't have Google at the time. I don't know that it would have helped. Did Sam seem extra Nixony to anyone but me this week? He, yeah, a little. I I was hard on Sam last week on the Sam sketch last week, and like this this works for me because he's just such a buffoon, and I guess also because he's not wrong. Like they are in fact stealing everything out from under him, but he's just a moron. So it's not the same modern hypocrisy that I'm just so exhausted by in real life. It's just like he's a moron, and there's a really when um he turns away, he turns up stage. And just misses them, and then they steal the podium, and he turns back around and like lets go of the piece of paper with a speech on it, and it just it just falls, <laughs> flutters to the ground. I don't know. It's a good <laughs> bit. Sam does outrage well. That's his thing. Hey, you guys better return that eagle in about thirty days or more. We made it. We did indeed. Uh, anyone have final thoughts about this episode? I now realize television has one major advantage over a live stage show. Oh, what's that? A television you can turn off. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We'll be back next week with special guest Bilal Dardai for a globetrotting discussion of the Peter Sellers episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. 
If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. The song that J.P. Gross sings over the end credits, was that the same one that Dr. Keith had done earlier in the season? I assumed it was made up. Yeah, I, I couldn't quite figure out what he was saying. He was saying something money. about money, and I couldn't yeah. tell if it was that money song or just a money song. It wasn't the money song. It was a money song.